0: A Bible that's in front of you, you'll find the text we're going to be in today on page 1547. We're in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 27. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 27. Today we arrive, wow, we arrive at the cross. We have been waiting. Matthew has been leading his listeners and readers through this whole gospel, wanting to bring us, wanting to bring them to this place, the cross, where Jesus died. It's hard to talk about the cross. I think a lot of us don't think about what Jesus went through. And I, I, I have no vision this morning of giving us anything that is super profound other than just to bring us to the text itself because the text itself is going to say it all. We're going to finish this text this morning by taking communion. We're going to take of the Lord's Supper, His given body and His shed blood. We're going to remember His death this morning. And it's a precious thing for the believer in Christ. It's, It's amazing to think that this is the kind of love that God has for us. You know, I would start by asking us this morning, who is it in your life that you would be willing to give your life for? Um, You know, thinking back when I was in junior high, there was a a young gal, her name was Bobby Greer. I think I would have given my life for Bobby Greer, (laughs) (laughs) foolishly. I think right now, you know, of course, I I would say I would lay down my life for my family, my spiritual family. Many of you, maybe not all of you, but many of you. <laughs> That's because I love you. That's because I know things about you. It's because you belong to me. My family belongs to me. Spiritual family belongs to me. But what about the people that really irk me? I think back to junior high. There's a couple guys in junior high. I don't think I'd die for those guys. You know, they made fun of me. Always, you know, one guy, he always called me Bowling Ball. That's what my nickname was in junior high. I have no idea why. But it just bugged me. I was so upset at this guy. All junior high, high school, hey, Bowling Ball. I don't even know what that means. What about people that steal from you or people that have done terrible things to you, your reputation? Or marred your character, or did some heinous crime against you. Would you die for those people? Probably not. But I guess that's what Paul was getting at when he said in Romans 6, where I really want to start today, and I'll just say it Very rarely will someone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might dare to die, Paul says. But God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were what? Yet sinners. Christ died for us. This is the amazing thing about the cross. The amazing thing about the cross is that Jesus gave Himself for sinners. People that were worth nothing. No merit whatsoever. No value. No intrinsic anything to God. And yet God showed us His love this way. Romans 5.8 tells us that He demonstrated His love this way by giving us His life. By Jesus dying for us. That's what we want to look at today. Jesus died for us. Beginning in verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews! They said, they spit on him, took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off hit the robe put his own clothes on him. And then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The robbers were, two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. For He said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with Him also heaped insults on Him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? When some of those standing... There heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance they had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. This is God's Word. I want us to consider today three things. I want us to see first the mocking that Jesus went through on his way to the cross. Then I want us to pause for a moment and think about the misery that Jesus endured while He was on the cross. And then we're going to look at the meaning of what it's all about. First, let's think about the the mocking that Jesus experienced on His way to the cross. Verses 27 through 31 show us this mocking scene. Remember, our text picks up where Jesus was flogged and handed over to be crucified. First, the, re- the, the release of Barabbas and then the flogging of Jesus. Some of your Bibles use the word scourging. Jesus would have been taken out of Pilate's presence. He would have been tied his hands above his head against a pole. His clothes would have been stripped off him, and a Roman legion would have stepped up with a, a whip, a short whip with many strands of leather. At the end of these strands were small weights of lead, to where the whip would come down across the back, the buttock, and the legs, and some, and most often the shoulders, all the way his upper torso, all the way down, as far down as would need be. Romans wouldn't be carrying out the Jewish law, but in Jewish law, forty uh, lashes was tantamount to death. Forty lashes. Jesus was scourged by the Roman guard. We don't know how many times, but we know that it was a whipping. We know that by the time that Jesus is led into the praetorium, here in verse 27, he is a bloody mess. His clothes have been placed back on him, saturated, led into this stony courtyard where they would wait for the executioners to come and take Jesus to the cross. And in the meanwhile, the Roman soldiers and those who were there thought they would have a little sport with Jesus, and so they began to mock Him. The text says they stripped Him and put a scarlet robe on Him, perhaps someone from the crowd tossing out one of their uniforms, perhaps a soldier's uniform himself, and placing it upon Jesus, this robe, in sort of a mock fashion of a leader or a king. They began to prostrate themselves before Jesus in mock veneration. Hail, King of the Jews! Snickers from the crowd, people laughing as they mocked this one who was pretending to be a king in their eyes. And creating this egregious offense against Rome. The Roman soldiers thought this was so great. You could hear the laughter through the hall of the praetorium as one by one people would step out, and the text says they knelt before Him, mocking Him, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 30, they spit on Him. Can you imagine? Anybody here, have you ever, don't raise your hand, have anybody been spit in the face before by another human being? Some of you sitting in the front row say, yeah, Pastor Larry, you spit on me a few times. (laughs) That doesn't count. I'm talking about Anger, I'm talking about in retribution. Twice in my adult life, I've been spit in the face by another adult. It's humiliating. You're angry. You want to strike back. Jesus was covered with the spit of people who mocked Him like a lather on His face from dirty and cruel men who mocked him." Well, every king needs a crown, someone perhaps seeing a thorny vine, perhaps used to bind the firewood for the governor's palace, unwinding it and making a makeshift crown, tosses it out to one of the soldiers. The knowing glance, the soldier looks back and says, I know what you mean. comes over and he mashes it onto the head of Jesus, thorns piercing his scalp, blood profusely running down his face. Every king needs a scepter, and so a staff is presented, perhaps a reed or a stick. Put that in his hand. There's Jesus, stooped before people who are spitting on him, heckling, mocking, holding a staff, a crown of thorns, and uttering no word. Why did he do it? He did it for me. He did it for you. He took the mocking pain, knowing that he was the righteous one, he was the king. It says that someone took a staff and struck him. They took the staff out of his hand, beat it over his head again and again, verse 30. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes back on him. Even scenes like this eventually come to an end. And it says they led him away to crucify him. The execution uh, squad had shown up, the centurion that was attached to the regiment of soldiers that would lead Jesus from the praetorium out through the city and up to this place, this killing place called Golgotha. Before we leave this scene, let's just think about a couple of things. First of all, let's think of the irony of this scene. The irony of the scene depicts the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, being mocked before senseless rabble. And isn't it ironic that Jesus, who is the King, is being called the King, Hail, King of the Jews! How ironic that this is actually His title. He is the King. He deserves their praise. But they mock Him instead. I want us to not only think of the irony of this scene, but I want us to think of exactly what this scene means for us, the implication of this scene in terms of our faith and witness. When considering the mockery that Jesus endured for us, we should never feel humiliated to stand up for the name of Jesus. And yet so many of us, myself included, are so timid at times even to say something like, would you like to come to church on Easter? As if we're going to encounter some terrible retribution why are we so shy? Why are we so afraid? It's as if the enemy has waved some magic wand over the people of God to say, Don't you dare speak up for Christ. You'll be treated like him. No, we won't. No one will ever be treated like Jesus, our dear Jesus, our loving Savior. He was mocked to the degree that no man will ever be mocked, no person will ever undergo the emotional psychological, physical torment that our Jesus went through for us. And why won't we open our mouths for Him? I pray that the Lord will give us in this season and every season of our lives more boldness. When people ask me how they can pray for me, I'll say sometimes, I'll say pray for more boldness. I'm so weak at times. I'm so cowardice at times. I just don't stand up enough for what I believe in. I can be so timid so fearful, so faithless? Give us boldness, Lord. A few years ago, I was talking to somebody in the post office line, and I thought I recognized him from church, and so I just went right into something going on in my life as a Christian. And as I went on a little bit, I could see there a little bit of an incredulous look. (laughs) They said, so how's your workout going? There was someone I knew at the gym, And I said, oh, now I got the context of where I knew this person from. The Lord really used that in my life. He said, why are you so free to talk to somebody that you know goes to your church? Why not talk to people like that everywhere? And so that was a turning point for me. And so now I try, I don't do it always. I've just admitted to you my cowardice and my fear, but just treat everybody the same. If there's something going on in my life. I'll tell them. If they know Christ. If they don't know Christ, if they go to my church, if they don't go to my church, they should be the same person I am here and outside. Anywhere I go, has the Lord been speaking to you about that? Jesus' mockery—the mockery given to Jesus—should speak into the boldness that we need as Christ followers. We should not be afraid. The mockery should embolden our ministry. Think of what Paul wrote in Romans 16. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Jesus said in, in Luke 9.26, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. In Second Timothy, Paul wrote again to Timothy, he said, Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Peter writes this, 1 Peter chapter 4, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. I want to dispatch all of us today myself included, to be bold for Christ. To not be afraid of sharing what Jesus is doing in our lives and not to be afraid to invite people to come and be a part of what God's doing. The enemy loves it when our lips are zipped. He loves it when we have the moment and the door opens and we cower and we fearfully walk away. So let's pray for each other, beloved. Let's pray that we would be bold witnesses I don't mean, let me clarify bold. Bold does not mean obnoxious. Bold does not mean rude. Bold does engender sensitivity and and a sense of timing and appropriateness, all of those things, but really, beloved, when was the last time we shared Jesus with anybody? Some of us are intimidated. Let the Picture of Jesus in verses 27 through 31 engender some boldness in our lives. He was mocked for us. He did this for us. Let's consider now the misery of Christ while on the cross. And there's a whole lot here that we should go over. It was the Romans' practice to make the condemned person carry his own cross In most artwork that depicts the scene, we see Jesus carrying an entire cross, but more likely it was the crossbeam, the patabellum as it is called, weighing between 80 and 110 pounds, first tied to the condemned person with his arms outstretched as he had to walk that some scholars believe 6 to 650 yards from the praetorium out the city gate through the old city and out the city gate to this place called Golgotha. We don't know exactly where it is, but there is a place outside of the walls of the old Jerusalem where on the hillside there's actually a figure, uh, holes in the side of the hill, which from a distance look like a skull. It could have been that place or it could have been a place simply known for the place of the skull where the skulls of those who had been crucified were piled up as sort of the trophies of Rome. It was a killing place. It was a place where people died. And as he, Jesus carried that cross beam across his shoulders and out through the city, exhausted, dehydrated, opened wounds, uh, wounds, a bloody mess. The Bible says, a man by the name of Cyrene was called upon to take the cross. Was Jesus unable to walk? Perhaps. His body was already giving out, no doubt. This strong man taken from the crowd, walking alongside of Jesus, hearing every breath, hearing his wheezing, his gasp for air, Jesus, as he went to the cross. The Gospel of John says that this man from Cyrene was coming in from out of the country, no doubt a pilgrim arriving late to Jerusalem with his two sons, being swept into the greatest drama of all time. They made their way to this place, the cross. And Matthew keeps this very undertoned, says when they had crucified him. That's all Matthew says when they had crucified him. Gospel, the Gospel of Mark chapter 15 says it this way, it just says, "And there they crucified him." Crucifixion for the Romans was a perfected torture system. The Romans had not devised it. It had come first from the Persians. Alexander the Great had picked it up from them, carried through the Greek culture, and like Rome, always perfecting, always imagining new ways, they had perfected crucifixion as the greatest torture because it brought the most severe pain to the human body while keeping the organs of the body somewhat uh, out of compromise, a slow, methodical death. For the person who had committed the egregious crime. Jesus, when finally reaching the place called the skull, was laid down over that cross beam, a spike five to seven inches placed between the bones of his wrist and driven through on both sides. We have this vision of one cross, but no light, no doubt. The cross beam hoisted upon the vertical stripe, the beam, and there Jesus hanging, taking His feet and attaching His feet with another spike, probably a larger spike. Romans did it both ways. They did it with feet on both sides of the beam and sometimes overlapped with one spike all the way through. A terrible, torturous death, a little seat, a little perch where the victim would be able to gain some strength and rest while he gathered himself, but could only breathe as he got himself off of that perch and up so his lungs could open. Three to four days was the average death of a crucified victim. Three to four days. And Jesus hung there. An excruciating pain. In fact, you know the word excruciating comes from the word of the cross. I don't know all the medical things that were going on. Some of you perhaps from the medical field would know far more. But the things I have read remind me of the incredible torture that Jesus underwent for us physically. His lungs filling with fluid The pericardium, that membrane around his heart filling with fluid, harder and harder to breathe, only being able to take short breaths, perhaps why his seven last sayings that are recorded in the Gospels are so short, so concise, depicting for us every last word of Jesus as he hung there on the cross. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness came over the land, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The one thing that Jesus had never experienced from eternity time past separation from his heavenly Father. And why did he do it? For me, for you. He's calling Elijah. Someone ran and got a sponge. Oh, did you notice in the first little section, they first took the drink mixed with gall and tasting it, he refused to drink it. This was a numbing potion, something that would deaden the pain. Jesus didn't allow the pain to be deadened. He would drink the suffering all the way down. And here, wetting the lips of Christ, perhaps only so that he could utter his last words, which Matthew doesn't even include. He only says... When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, verse 50, he gave up his spirit. Wow. And just like that, Jesus, his physical life was gone. Hanging on the cross from 9 o'clock until 3 o'clock. Probably one of the shortest deaths But it wasn't Jesus dying because of the physical. Jesus laid down His own life. No one would take His life from Him. He laid it down Himself and He has the power to raise it up again, Jesus said. But He laid it down. If any of you have ever wondered about how much God loves you, this is how He loves you. He gave His Son to die for you so that you could live, so that you could have life. What does this mean? What what does all this mean? We take just a couple of minutes and let's walk through what this means. What it means for us is this. Number one, all of our sins are paid in full. All of our sins. Verses 45 through 50 remind us that Jesus is paying for the sins of the world. In that moment, all the sins were laid upon Christ. That's why the Father looks away. The book of Colossians says in chapter 1.14, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Colossians 2.13 says that He is the redemption. While we were yet sinners... While we being dead in our sin, He has made us alive together with Him and having forgiven all of our sins, pantos, all, all, past, present, future, all of our sins. There's no question here that the weight of the sins of the world, every sin of every person that God would redeem here on the life and body of Christ when He gave up His Spirit. He paid for the sins of the world, stamped over every one of our lives. Our sins paid in full by trusting in Christ and receiving His gift, paid in full. He died for our sins. Secondly, it means that we now have full access and complete access to God, full and complete access to God. Verse 51, at, the moment, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, a curtain that was 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, in the great temple that Solomon had built. And in that temple, that curtain was the symbol of the separation between a holy God and sinful man. One day out of the year, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, where the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, past the curtain and into the holy of holies to sprinkle b- blood with the hyssop branch on the altar and the seat of uh, the mercy seat of the of the ark of the covenant there the blood would cover one more time the sins of the people for another year the curtain was a reminder that there was a separation between God and us and isn't it amazing beloved that while that separ- separation has existed in the death of Christ, there was a tearing of that curtain, a supernatural tearing from the top to the bottom. No way any person could have done that. What a visible reminder that now access to God, the writer of Hebrews says this, we have this hope as an anchor of the soul, firm and secure. He enters; It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus is who went before us, who entered on our behalf. Hebrews ten nineteen through 22 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is His body, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Full access. I don't need a priest. I don't need saints. I don't need a pastor. I have full access into the presence of Almighty God because of Jesus, His death the curtain is torn. How amazing. How amazing this is. It also means that we can experience resurrection life. Now, this is a curious place in the text, and only Matthew includes this little picture that at this great earthquake when the earth shook and the rocks split, tombs broke open. And in the Greek language, this is not easy to interpret. It says And the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life and came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many people. It sounds like these people were resurrected at the death of Christ, and maybe as the first fruits, but Jesus had not yet been resurrected. So I don't think that's what's going on here. It's a difficult translation. It's the only place in the Gospels, and it is a mysterious text. I think what Matthew's telling us, and perhaps in the writing of it, it becomes in some ways confusing to us, but I think what he's saying is that as the earthquake shook and tombs were open, it would have been at the resurrection of Christ that the first fruits of resurrection would have come forth. And there were those that were waiting for the Messiah, who were trusting in Christ, who were resurrected as first fruits of our resurrection. And they came into the holy city. And you can just, can you imagine that, by the way? Hey, I thought you were dead. Where did you come from? I'm here, (laughs) you know, like, I mean, the Bible is silent on this whole thing. It's just a, it's a a wild situation. But maybe Matthew just inserts that to just wet our appetite, to kind of fire the warning shot of what's coming for all of us who know Christ. The promise of resurrection life. Through the death of Christ, without the death of Christ, no resurrection. And Matthew kind of puts it all together, even before the resurrection of Christ has occurred. It means one more thing. It means that God will open the eyes of the most unlikely people to see Jesus for who He is. I can't get away from verse 54 and that centurion. and Those who are with Him, who are guarding Jesus. Wow. What does He say? Surely this must have been... Surely this was the Son of God. You think God wants to surprise some people? People sitting here amongst us over this next little season of ministry, actually visually seeing the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and God somehow in His own miraculous way opening the heart to say, this is for you. This is for you, this is for you, this is for you. This is for that neighbor of yours. This is for that person that you care about. This is that person that you're not even sure about. He did it for us, the cross. He died. and In a couple of weeks, we'll celebrate His resurrection, which we'll come to in the text itself. I can't get away from verse 55. There were women who were there watching from a distance. I love that. Where are all the men? (laughs) They fled, even the disciples. These dear women, I know some women like that, so dedicated, so devoted, watching their Lord, caring for His needs. They couldn't stay away. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary... And the mother of Zebedee's sons, these women. Pure devotion and worship at the cross of Christ. (sighs) Well, I hope you're encouraged, beloved, that this is the love of God for us. He did this for us. In fact, let's make that personal. He did this for me. Would you say that with me? He did this for me. Say it again. He did this for me.